and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Rachel Britt, and I am an infectious diseases pharmacist at UTMB Health in Galveston, Texas. If your conference attendance has been anything like mine in the virtual era, you might feel like you've missed out on all of the buzz around the breaking scientific research that comes out of ID meetings. Fortunately for you, though, and for me, I have two perfect panelists to fill us in on two important late breaker trials from ECMID 2021, Overcome and Merino 2. Our first panelist today is Jason Polk. Jason is a clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. Go Blue. He also is the clinical pharmacy lead for the Overcome trial. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to come on Breakpoints. We're glad to have you back. Our next panelist, Adam Stewart, is an infectious diseases and microbiology registrar at Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital and a medical research fellow at University of Queensland Center for Clinical Research. He also is the first author of the recently published Merino 2 trial and lead investigator of the ongoing Merino 3 study. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks very much, Rachel. Glad to be here. Okay, I'm really excited to get started, so we'll jump right into it. First, the Overcome study looked at the efficacy of colistin monotherapy versus colistin miropenem combo therapy for bloodstream infections and pneumonia caused by extensively drug-resistant gram-negatives, including Enterobacteriales, Acinetobacter, and Pseudomonas. It's also the first and only randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial for the treatment of XTR gram-negatives. While the first Merino trial gave us insight on how to best treat extended-spectrum beta-lactamase-producing bacteria, the Merino 2 pilot randomized controlled trial looked at piperacillin-tazobactam versus miropenem for the treatment of bacteremia due to AMPC producers like Enterobacter, Citrobacter fundii, Morganella morganii, Providentia, and Serratia marcescens. Before we can get into the details of these studies, though, we need to talk about the challenges in conducting pathogen-directed clinical trials in the gram-negative resistant space. Jason and Adam, what difficulties did you encounter while conducting these studies? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up, Rachel. Uh, uh, challenging is, is an understatement, in my opinion. I, I certainly was probably unprepared or underprepared for what we'd really have to deal with. And just to kind of put this in perspective for everybody with regards to overcome, I was two years out of residency when we wrote the protocol for Overcome. We enrolled our first patient in 2012, and we just wrapped up our study with 425 eligible patients this year in 2021. So we're literally talking about it took us a decade to complete this trial because it's a difficult patient population, challenging uh, drug selections, things of that nature. And so I like to talk about, you know, why, and I think it's really important for the, the audience to appreciate some of the issues that come up and make, what make it really hard. And hopefully as it makes it so whenever you read these publications, maybe you give us a little bit of a break um, and not tear us apart too much when you look at our methodology and everything that comes up, because there are a lot of challenges that you have to kind of deal with. Just talking about my experience with Overcome and our experience, why did it take us a decade to complete this? This was a, a study that was funded by the NIH. And so because of that, we're very thankful for that, by the way, obviously our intention was to complete the study in the United States. And so when we started this study in 2012, we had about a half dozen sites. And I actually thought that was a pretty good number in Detroit, New York City, Miami, and Columbus, Ohio. 
I mean, we're going to let the Columbus, Ohio thing slide uh, here today as, as a Michigan Wolverine. We're just going to let that part slide here today. But while we had great investigators and I had a really enjoyable time working with some brilliant people at those sites, the problem was, or the issue was, is that the number of patients with an XDR gram negative bloodstream infection or pneumonia are just extremely low in this country. So you have six sites. It's just not a common disease state that you see here in the United States. Then if you think about as this developed over the 2010s, what happened? Well, we had the arrival of a bunch of novel agents for the treatment of CRE and XDR pseudomonas. This is great for patients. These are better therapies than the ones we were investigating in this trial. No doubt about that, but it killed us, right? Because then you had another kind of hurdle to get past because we wanted people to get the best drug first. And so what we learned very quickly, and this is such an important lesson for anyone who wants to try to do studies in this, in this space, is that good investigators is important, but you need both good investigators and sites with sufficient numbers of potentially eligible patients. And it's really challenging to put that together. And I would argue that in the United States, particularly if you're talking about XDR gram negatives, it's impossible. Luckily for us, we had a very committed group at the NIH led by Dennis Dixon who really wanted to see us succeed and they allowed us to branch out overseas. And thanks to some great investigators in Thailand, Taiwan, Israel, and across Europe, we were actually able to complete this study again nine years later. Rachel, just to kind of put this in perspective for you in the audience, to enroll 425 patients into Overcome that were ultimately eligible, we screened over 12,000 patients over a decade. So again, it's, it's a really challenging thing. It's why you don't see a lot of stuff come out in this space. The other thing I want to talk about real briefly, Rachel, is just that, again, we were talking, and when we designed this study, we were really focused on carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. And you know, right, when you talk about acinetobacter, you're usually talking about pneumonia, you're talking about complex patient populations. And Rachel, just think of someone who you're taking care of at your institution right now with CRAB, right? It, it doesn't happen frequently, but when it occurs, you're talking about acinetobacter growing from a respiratory sample. The patient is often a clinical mess with every comorbidity known to man. The diagnosis of pneumonia is often soft or you can't be sure because they have a lot of other cardiovascular and respiratory issues going on. And so what we learned, and again, one of the challenges and something to think about when you're interpreting these data is that you really have to be pragmatic about inclusion criteria. You know, it's nice to have a textbook definition, right, for pneumonia, new chest x-ray showing infiltrate, this, 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 and that. But if you limit your inclusion to that, you're never going to roll anybody. If you're going to only want absolutely positively 100%, they definitely have carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter uh, bomani pneumonia, you're going to really struggle to get patients. And therefore, over time, we had to evolve a little bit, or, or again, the nine-year study would have took 35 years to actually complete if we did it that way. And so one thing that we did in our trial, and it's something that you'll see when you look at our data, is that we, again, trying to be pragmatic, trying to be realistic about what we're dealing with it. We weren't talking about comparing a new beta-lactam to an old beta-lactam, right? We're talking about using colistin. Nobody wants to give that drug to their patients unless they absolutely have to do so. And so because of that, 
we, we basically just said, if the provider, if the site PI and the primary team think this guy has pneumonia and they're gonna treat him, we're including this patient because no one gives them this drug unless they absolutely have to. And so I know I rambled a bit there and I apologize for that, but just for me, what we learned over and over again through this trial is that there's a stark difference between ideal clinical trial and what's realistic or pragmatic to actually get the study done. Feel free to ramble away. It's always helpful. <laughs> and I can't tell you with crab, I can't tell you how many times that I, every time I see crab, which is not very frequently, fortunately at my hospital, I'm texting Aaron McCreary, who is very well known to break points. What would you do for this crab? So yeah, really difficult question. And I applaud you guys for really trying to tackle this issue for us. Adam, what kind of difficulties did you guys have in Merino 2? Yeah, look, um, just to echo some of Jason's points, I mean, you know, pathogen-directed trials against some of the sort of resistant gram negatives are, are amongst sort of the, the most important trials that sort of clinicians need to guide therapy, but incredibly difficult. And I'm sure uh, this is a sentiment that's um, consistent with a lot of trial you know, investigators around the world. You know, even sometimes regardless of prevalence of MDR and XDR pathogens uh, and infections, because the, the methodology is and the, the, the conductance of the trial is, is quite difficult and has a lot of limitations. So a lot of the inclusion criteria, as sort of Jason point, points out, you end up having to take a very pragmatic approach um, due to a number of sort of early limitations. A lot of those are laboratory based, you know, for our Merino trial studies, looking at bloodstream infection, you know, having that sort of delay in sort of microbiological diagnosis and, you know, susceptibility testing results before you can actually uh, successfully enroll a patient um, can be quite sort of problematic. Um, and it's very, very slow. So the window for enrollment in, in our trials and in certainly a lot of other, other trials is 72 hours from blood culture draw. Um, and that's really sort of like a, a Goldilocks balance between, you know, having, you know, that early treatment effect of being on trial drug, you know, as early as possible versus, you know, that delay and having that exposure early on to empiric or other therapy, which you're not really that interested in looking at. And obviously that's going to sort of dilute down your, your um, observed treatment effect. So that, that's, um, that's, that's really a problem. So as you know, in the lab, there's a number of ways in which to sort of diagnose um, or identify pathogens and, and perform susceptibility testing. And they have problems within their, you know, within themselves. And as we demonstrated quite nicely in the Merino 1 trial, that there is problem with, uh, in particular, Piperacil and Tazobactam MIC testing, you know, comparing, you know, Vitec versus the sort of gold standard of broth microdilution. Um, there is uh, some, some inconsistencies there and that would sort of change you know, the break, change the, um, you know, sensitivity and resistant um, reporting and, and change clinician decision-making on antimicrobials and, and even in, enrollment into the trial. So, um, so that we weren't, we learned quite a lot from that. And obviously a lot of these patients are on, um, as I mentioned before, prolonged empiric therapy, which, which is, is a big problem. And often, especially in Merino too, 
they uh, can defervesce or you know, have rapid clinical cure, which means once again, that's going to dilute your observed treatment effect and uh, you won't necessarily be able to sort of weed out those patients that, that um, you know, would potentially benefit either from Priprocil and Tazobactam or whatever your sort of comparator and control arms of the trial. So, so really a lot, of, um, a lot of difficulties there. There are some sort of uh, laboratory assays and, and um, testing strategies that are coming out that are trying to improve this. Uh, you know, things like Accelerate Pheno, where, where rapid sort of diagnostics, biofire um, are trying to, to help with that. And we're, we're trying to sort of include some of those platforms in our future trials to try and improve the methodology of some of these sort of XDR, MDR, gram-negative trials. Well, thank you guys for walking us through that. As ID clinicians, we're so trained to really critically evaluate all literature. And I think that's very important and a great skill. But we sometimes lose sight of really what goes into making these trials happen in the first place and honestly just being thankful. So on behalf of the ID community, thank you guys for all of your hard work because finding from studies like yours are instrumental in shaping treatment decisions all over the world. So now we'll talk about overcome. And first, Jason, can you explain how y'all designed your study? Yeah, my pleasure. And so again, I want everybody to kind of go in their way back when machine because when we designed this study was 2009. And so even though this study includes XDR-SUD, XDR-Acinetobacter and CRE, this was primarily designed as an Acinetobacter trial because in 2009, that was our primary principal concern that we were dealing with, particularly in Metro Detroit, which is where we wrote the protocol. CRE was just coming onto the scene, and in the U.S., it was really only localized to New York City at that point in time. So I want to kind of highlight that when we were designing the study, it was focused on acinetobacter. And what you're going to find is that that's actually largely what we saw, um, again, because none of the new drugs that came out really target acinetobacter. So it was the one that we were really able to still enroll into the trial. So if, again, go back to 2009. And the big question, this is before poly B was even a thing, you know, that wasn't even a consideration for people. Colistin, the, the question was, is that Colistin has all these issues. We're, start, we're just starting to learn about them. We still have concerns about being able to hit pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic parameters with the drug, even though we didn't really appreciate it to the full degree at that point in time. There was concern with giving monotherapy and resistance development. And so the big question is, is you know, when you give colistin, is there a benefit to adding a second synergistic drug? You know, you always see all this in vitro data, right? Where you see this great in vitro synergy. But the question was, is, did that mean anything? Did that, did that matter clinically? And so we designed it kind of in that backdrop. And, and I'll be honest, me personally, when I was learning about colistin in this time frame. I was actually pretty convinced that the issues surrounding colistin were largely because we weren't dosing it right. I thought that there was just really poor dose selection. If you can remember back at the back in the day, there were all these different products. The conversion between colistomethate sodium and colistin-based activity made people's heads explode. You know, the package insert dosing didn't even make sense. You couldn't really interpret it for when you were really dosing. Just We just learned that a loading dose might be beneficial. And so what we really focused on in the study was we're going to dose optimize colistin. 
that meant giving mil at least what we thought was dose optimized in 2009, giving weight-based dosing, using adjusted body weight, you know, having a loading dose, a good renal dosing schedule, like all the pharmacy geek stuff that we think about, we really, that was a huge focus. And so if you did that, if you fixed it, again, in our minds, that was fixing colistin. Um, we were wrong, but that's what we were thinking at the time was that that was fixing colistin. Is there a benefit to giving a second drug in combination, one of these synergistic drugs? And so the other group was colistin, same dosing, plus meropenem. And so the thing I want you to remember when you're reading the study, you don't have to send me nasty emails about it or tweet at me about it. But what I want you to remember about this study is that in 2009, we were going for synergy between colistin and meropenem. So the dose of meropenem that we gave in this trial was standard. It was one Q8 as a 30 minute infusion because we were going for synergistic dosing. And I still think that's okay. But just before you at me about this, remember that the two Q8 three hour infusion stuff was CRE, didn't come out to the mid 2010s. Again, an acinetobacter, you don't have those low level resistant isolates. And so everything is high level resistance. So again, this was meant to be a synergy look. So just keep that in mind um, when you're looking at it. In fact, one of our secondary outcomes, and then we're actually presenting some data at ID Week on this, is for each index isolate in this study, Mike Ryback actually did time kill experiments for us to see if there's actually in vitro synergy and whether or not that impacted outcomes in patients who got combination therapy. So again, pay attention to that. If you're attending ID week, we're gonna present some data on that. But that was our focus. That's how we designed it. Uh, we chose bloodstream infection and pneumonia because we thought it was what mattered the most, right? As clinicians in 09, we didn't know what we were doing with regards to these therapies, and this was the problems that we were dealing with. We knew it would make for a messy patient population, but we also knew that it meant that it would be able to answer the questions we were interested in. We didn't, we weren't interested in whether or not, you know, combination therapy was necessary for urinary tract infections. And, and actually, we were kind of concerned that if we included things like UTIs, then you might actually dilute the effect that might come out with combination therapy, right? If it matters, we want to show it in, in the matters that in, in the patients that's going to matter in. And then the other big thing we had to come up with was what, what outcomes were we going to look at. And so when we when we did this, again, and I it's why I led in with with the give us a little bit of a leeway when you read our paper, right? Is that I read all the other publications that were out at that point in time. And, you know, I was critical of some of the outcomes that people looked at. And what we really wanted to do was to overcome, again, that's not where we titled the, 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 the study from, but we, we did want to overcome some of those limitations that we always have interpreting studies in this space. And honestly, one of the big ones is 28-day mortality. While that is our primary outcome in this study, and it has to be, it should be, because ultimately it's what we care about most, I always wonder when you're talking about acinetobacter bomani, right? Because you, again, we talked about this, you know those patients that you're dealing with, and they can cure their infection and still die within 28 days, right? And so we're, our concern is that, it's, again, we're going to dilute out any effect. And so one thing we really focused a lot on, and I will encourage you to take a look at this when you see our data, is our clinical failure definition. Because we really, it's a, it's a composite of a few different things, but it's really looking at what we thought appropriate or better, if it is better, drug therapy would be able to impact. And so that was a big thing for that. 
In addition, because we're giving a lot of colistin, right? We're looking at safety. And then as I talked about before, other questions were, does in vitro synergy matter on outcomes? So we look at that. And then also one of the reasons that people think combination therapy for colistin is it might be able to prevent the development of resistance. And so that's another thing that we looked at was the impact of combo therapy on that. So what would you say are the most important findings from the study at this point? <laughs> at this point, yes. Yeah. So at this point is key. Um, we're still doing some final analyses, although I feel pretty confident that our primary analysis won't change in any significant way. So again, the one thing I want to highlight for those who will be thinking of this or looking at this publication is that it started off as a crab pneumonia study and it kind of ended there. Um, about 80% of our patients in the study actually had Acinetobacter bomani, and about 70% had pneumonia. And I think the headline is, is that no matter what group you looked at, whether it be overall, whether it be any organism subgroup, whether it be any infection type subgroup, there was no significant difference between combination therapy and monotherapy for either 20-day mortality or for clinical failure. So even our fancy, that propped up definition I just gave of clinical failure, we didn't see any significant difference between those two. That said, I am extremely deep, Adam can appreciate this, I'm very deep in this data set right now. Um, and, and if you're asking me, which I guess you are, because I'm on this pod, right? The data <laughs> seem to suggest to me that there may, this is really good science language that I'm using here, but there may very well be a small beneficial effect to combination therapy. And the reason that I say that is that when you look at our outcomes overall, when you look at them in various subgroups, you see this signal pretty consistently for about a 10 to 15% advantage in the favor of combination therapy. And again, just to be like annoying, the p-values are like 0.1 or 0.2, you know, just enough to tantalize you, but not be statistically significant. And then the stat police will come after me, right, to talk about all that type of stuff. But what, what really kind of is compelling-ish to me is the consistency throughout different bugs, throughout different infection type, and then for both of our outcomes, mortality and clinical failure. So I think that there might be something there, but as you suggested, the analysis is still ongoing. I would say that even if it is real, it's modest. It's very modest, again, 10 to 15% um, relative reduction. And I do wanna highlight that none of these end up uh, statistically significant. The other thing I just have to say with regards to our outcomes, because some of our audience might not be familiar with Clistin or using it a lot in patients. And I think it's really important to note that in both of our arms, they got big doses of Clistin for seven to 14 days. Uh, that came with an AKI rate and acute kidney injury rate of 50% in both groups. And one third of those cases were hardcore AKI, meaning the failure criteria in rifle, which is a three times increase in serum creatinine from baseline. So again, there's a reason that we say don't use this drug unless you have to. And these findings will really kind of support that. So you're saying you're finishing up the primary analysis. What are y'all's other plans with the data that you have? And when is the full paper coming out? After all this talk, I'm <laughs> really eager to see it. Yeah. So my, again, like I said, there's actually an email sitting for me right now to open. I'm not going to do it on the pod though, but there's an email with those <laughs> final analyses to look at. Um, 
my anticipation, Rachel, would be that we'll submit this end of the month, early October, the primary manuscript. But then remember, as I stated before, there's a few additional analyses that we're going to present at ID Week on the impact of synergy on outcomes and combination therapy on resistance. And then we'll write those up. And then the other thing, just for the audience to be aware of, is that one thing we did as part of this study is we actually got pretty robust colistin PK sampling in a fair number of patients in both arms. And so down the road, once we get there, again, COVID permitting, you know, allowing us to work on things that we actually want to work on, we'll be doing some pretty extensive PKPD and PKTD or toxicodynamic analyses, really to look at the impact of exposures on both clinical response as well as the development of toxicity. So you're basically telling me that you're about to give the ID world the best Christmas present ever. I, I like that. Sounds good to me. Well, good. I can't wait to unwrap that in December. Uh, let's pivot back to Marino too now. Thanks so much, Jason, for all that explanation. Adam, why did y'all decide to do Marino two as a pilot study rather than a larger RCT? So I think this sort of, um, you know, segues quite well from earlier discussions regarding feasibility in some of these trials. You know, it's always a multitude of factors, but originally the sort of Marino clinical trials group led by uh, David Patterson wanted to sort of answer the question about carbapenem sparing therapies. And we were, you know, watching quite worryingly around the world as, you know, carbapenem resistant organism sort of prevalence was, was on the rise. And we were left often with uh, limited treatment options. And what was really driving this drive of, of carbapenem resistance? So we looked at the most common you know, indications, and that was certainly ESBL uh, producing uh, organism infections with um, causing severe infection and sepsis, and, and really ESBL and AMPC producers sort of uh, ticked the box for that one. Obviously, the, the first of Sentinel trial um, was the focus early on and, and sort of trying to get a decent enough sample size to definitively answer that question, um, which was done really well uh, by both David uh, and Patrick Harris that was published um, in 2018, Marino One. And then, and then, you know, feasibility and funding limitations, all those things I'm sure Jason knows quite well. We, you have to make some decisions about um, how, how things are gonna look. And I, I think the group thought that, you know, having a, a small trial uh, that's able to sort of demonstrate feasibility of, of this sort of pathogen-directed trial for AMC producers that hadn't been done before um, in an RCT setting, whether that could um, be done. And the, the information or clinical data generated from that would be quite useful. And we, were, we would, could be sort of left with a decision at the end to say, well, which way is it gonna go? Are we gonna try and make this into a larger trial? Are we gonna incorporate different arms? And it, it gives you a lot more options. Unfortunately, and as I mentioned um, in the paper for Marino 2, recruitment was incredibly difficult. So recruitment started in early 2015 and ended in um, late December of uh, 2019. So a five-year period uh, where we were only able to sort of uh, enrol 79 patients, of which only 72 were eligible in the modified intention to treat uh, group and you know hundreds and hundreds were screened uh, there were multiple sites and um, 
and it was it was really really difficult and as i mentioned before uh, you know there was a whole whole bunch of factors related to that and so and as um you know a problem similar to jason you know the farmer and the whole world moves on you know there are new agents coming out there are you know the Oviva trial, people are, are much more comfortable switching to oral therapy for severe and in, invasive infection now. So, you know, it, it, as a group, you, you face decisions to say, well, where are our resources best um, put and, and how should we move on to try and sort of solve some of these big, big problems in infectious diseases uh, in the best and most economical way? And then, you know, the decision was made to sort of... Um, Originally, we wanted to enrol uh, 100 patients, but the decision was made to sort of cut that earlier and, um, you know, provide that sort of useful preliminary data and then move on. Um, and in many ways, that's sort of in the form of Merino 3, uh, which, which I'm also leading, which will be looking at keftolazane tazobactam, both for ESBL producers and AMPC producers with, with a much larger sample size. Um, and so hopefully to answer some of those, um, you know, questions a bit more definitively. Yes, and Merino 2 actually is fully published and available. So um, I'm sure most of our listeners know that, but if not, you can go check it out in Open Forum Infectious Diseases. Uh, but Adam, can you walk us through what some of the key findings of the study were? Absolutely. So uh, look, it wasn't, the findings weren't sort of magical and, and somewhat, you know, big practice changing, but they were very interesting and, and will sort of hopefully help sort of dictate or, um, you know, help inform future trial design. But essentially our primary outcome was a composite primary outcome. Uh, made up of four components, uh, one being the most important, which is mortality at 30 days, and then uh, definitions for both microbiological failure um, and clinical failure, and then microbiological relapse. And that was um, that final one is where you would grow the uh, index organism um, from the blood cultural sterile, sterile site within a 30-day follow-up period from randomization. So the baseline characteristics between the Piperacil and Tazobactam group were fairly, fairly similar. And they, uh, there were slight sort of numerical differences, not, not particularly significant, uh, statistically significant. For instance, in the Piperacil and Tazobactam arm, there were sort of more health care associated and hospital acquired uh, infection of, of their bloodstream infection. Uh, they, um, a lot of them had uh, lines in situ and the cause of infection was a line infection and a lot of those had a delayed uh, line removal as compared to uh, the meropenemum. And as I'm sure a lot of your listeners would appreciate that um, when you get numbers sort of, you know, in, in this sort of range, uh, occurrences due to chance, um, uh, often happen and which means sort of it makes interpretation a, a little bit difficult in terms of the the primary endpoint when comparing two two arms so if you do have you know a, a difference even of a couple of days of line removal between arms with a high prevalence of line associated infection you know you will you know get a difference in certain endpoints um, that will be observed that may not that may sort of be confounding the treatment effect, which is what, you know, the difference between the, the Piperacil and Tazobactam versus Meropenem. It may confound that observation. 
um, which is, is really what you're interested in, in terms of answering the, the clinical question. So in terms of looking at the composite primary outcome, there was no difference observed. Um, so that's where they had to meet one of the four, or they could meet all four. There was no statistical significance between uh, both arms. But what we noted on our sort of subgroup analysis when looking at um, all the individual components of the, the composite outcome, there were some interesting findings. So one being the sort of microbiological failure rate, uh, which was uh, higher in the piperacil and tazobactam arm compared to the meropenem arm, which was statistically significant. Now, as I mentioned before, there are a whole bunch of reasons uh, why that could be possible. Um, the most obvious one that stood out to us was the delayed line removal and the fact that patients were, you know, the, the infections were mostly acquired in, in hospital and um, sort of easily reversible or, fi or fixed or more easily re reversible or fixed. But, but it also brings up whether there is um, a mechanism related to this microbiological failure. And we, we looked into that a little bit more and uh, did some, some further analyses and found that the, of those who had an Enterobacter species infection, those in the piperacillin and tazobactam arm experienced more microbiological failures. And this finding was not statistically significant but it certainly does raise that sort of um, poss biological possibility of selecting for derepressed AMPCs or upregulation of, of AMPC enzymes leading to possible, you know, clinical failure. Uh, and this is something that's certainly very interesting and that, you know, we, sh we should explore a bit further on um, down the track because from a lot of those sort of primary studies looking at the AMPC producers and um, AMPC derepression, uh, you know, certainly Enterobacter and Citrobacter are known to sort of uh, hydrolyze or upregulate their AMPC enzymes in the setting of beta-lactams and hydrolyze these antibiotics much more readily and at a higher rate compared to other AMPC producers like, you know, Morganella species and so on. So that was, that was really, really interesting. There was also some discordant results um, that surprised us. So there were more microbiological relapses in the meropenem arm. So that's where, you know, they completed their trial, study trial drug and then experienced um, a, re, a microbiological relapse. And look, looking at the sort of characteristics of the meropenem arm, a lot of them were older. A lot of them had community acquired infections. So potentially more invasive and harder to eradicate. And they received numerically a slighter, slight shorter duration of, of antibiotic therapy. So these are all sort of hypotheses as to you know, why these results were, were observed, um, but certainly quite interesting and, and things that, that could be explored a bit more in, in the future. As you were talking, it was like you were reading my mind. More, more of my questions kept popping up in my head for you, and you kept answering them immediately. So <laughs> that was so that was so great. And speaking of questions, you've mentioned that y'all are already working on Merino three. So I want to know what questions you think still need answering after Merino two, and if we're going to get any of those answers from Merino three. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, I think, uh, and this is with my statistical hat on. I think. The, the biggest thing is, is sample size. I, you need numbers. And, you know, I certainly the statistician 
working in our group, Mark Chatfield, you know, he likes to talk in four, four figures, um, but often that is just, that is, is not feasible for a number of reasons. But I think with Merino 3, there should be, um, you know, a whole bunch of patients with AMC producing, you know, organism infections recruited and, and we should get the, the numbers to be able to sort of definitively tease out whether some of these uh, observations with beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors uh, are, are real or cl you know, clinically significant enough to change practice. We'll also do sort of uh, further microbiological analyses in uh, Merino 3 that could potentially you know, look at the activity in vitro of you know, keptolazine tazobactam and, um, and piperacillin tazobactam. Certainly a lot of these studies have already been done and the MIC uh, distribution or MIC value seem to be um, better or, or slightly lower on average, um, which is good. Uh, and, and looking at um, some further, looking at clinical isolates and um, you can do all sorts of things like, you know, RNA sequence analysis where you can actually quantify the uh, amount of AMPC derepression in some of these follow-up bloodstream isolates. Uh, to sort of put the big clinical picture together, to sort of, sort of say, well, you know, the organisms being exposed to, um, you know, keptolazine tazobactam or another beta-lactamase beta inhibitor, it's then been regrown after the patient's had a fever or, or you know, a systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Um, and then you can, you can document the, or look at the, you know, biological explanation for that uh, and then compare it to clinical outcomes. And that's really what our group does, sort of to try and complete the whole picture. Um, and then you can sort of input different antibiotics to, to sort of see the, the, the differential effects of that on, on bloodstream infection. And also I wanna point out at this stage, you know, you need to look at the flip side of the coin. So why are we doing all of this? We're doing all of this to try and, you know, halt or at least hinder the, the surge of um, carbapenem resistance. So you need to look at whether resistance is developing. And, you know, I'm involved in a lot of you know, microbiome studies and of patients with bloodstream infection on different antibiotics. And our group's also, you know, looking within these trials at what the effect of, you know, uh, the gut microbiome and colonization resistance and, and sort of um, burden of antimicrobial resistance genes uh, what that is with, you know, carbapenems and beta-lactamase inhibitors and, and all these other antibiotics that we use because it's, it's one thing to prove non-inferiority because meropenem is a fantastic drug um, for, these, for these infections, um, but you need to, need to prove that there is a beneficial effect. And I think that certainly clinicians are, are reticent on taking on all of these novel, um, often expensive agents because of the uncertainty in a lot of these, um, with uh, surrounding a lot of these drugs. But I think if we can, we can sort of, you know, investigate these appropriately and, and potentially prove a benefit, you know, it might solve some of the um, economic problems with newer agents as well. Adam, that was awesome. I'm so glad you're looking at the resistance piece of it too, because I feel that that gets neglected where people just assume that that piece is good. And I just got to show this other piece. So the fact that you're trying to systematically do that makes me very happy. It does complicate things a bit because nothing's ever simple, but you know, it's, it's a start. <laughs>
I'm really looking forward to Merino 3 and learning all about this new information that's going to come out. And for those listeners out there that are inspired after listening to Jason Adam talk to do your own trial, but you feel like you need some brushing up, check out SIDP.org for the research mini series. So you too can be statistical experts like them. I just want to say thank you both for joining me today and sharing your important work with me and all of our Breakpoints listeners. I think this has been a really, really excellent explanation of these two major studies. And I think both of you maybe avoided some nasty emails, as Jason put it. For our listeners, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the SIDB podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Britt, and our featured speakers have been Drs. Jason Pogue and Adam Stewart. This episode was produced by Zara K. Escobar and myself, and it was edited by Kelly Hannon, Joanne Huang, and Corey Medler. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julianne Gesto and Aaron McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.